0: Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening for our listeners in Europe. This is Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance. I'm here with Susan Walker of the Penn Institute for Urban Research, and this is Special Briefing. Today, in our continuing series on COVID-19, uh, we're looking at uh, the pandemic, state and local fiscal stress, and the politics of federal aid, with an expert panel who follow these issues very closely. We're joined today by Norman Ornstein. Norm Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of the Volcker Alliance board. We're also joined by Dick Ravitch, my friend, and Susan's friend as well, former New York State Lieutenant Governor and a Volcker Alliance board member, Robin Prunty, Managing Director and Head of Analytics and Research for S&P Global Ratings, uh, U.S. Public Finance. Uh, Just a small word of disclosure, I I spent several years working for S&P as well as for its uh, associated company at the Old McGraw-Hill. So we go way back when. And uh, finally, but not last, Frank Schafroth, Director for the Center for State and Local Government Leadership at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University in Virginia. Frank, best known for his work with Distressed Cities, his work on Chapter 9, and also at the National League of Cities. So we're going to talk about the politics of federal aid, uh, which are just about to heat up again. And then we're gonna talk about some of the outcomes. uh, What could happen? What's likely to happen? What happens if there's no agreement between the House and the Senate on federal aid? A very complicated matrix indeed. Just a couple of housekeeping details. Attendees, welcome again. Your mics will be muted. We've taken questions in advance as is our usual practice. So we will be getting to many of your questions during the, the latter part of the session today. In addition, there's no video today. We're keeping it simple and it's uh, panelists and the panelists and talk, but we will have some supplemental materials posted to the archived site at the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. So without further ado, let me just uh, introduce Susan Walker to say a few words of welcome, and then we're off and running.
2: Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here again with you and with this series co-sponsored by the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute of Urban Research. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Norm Ornstein, who is resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and Volcker Alliance board member, as Bill has just said. Norm will discuss the politics of aid bills, and that's certainly right up there in terms of interest because we've had a lot of aid bills and more coming, it appears. What's the likelihood that, in fact, we will see one of these when congress convenes in july
3: norm so let me uh, start by laying out a, a larger landscape and always keep in mind that the impetus in congress what will happen in congress what will happen more broadly may very well be shaped by the events of the next three to five weeks or so maybe even beyond and we know that we're gonna be having this giant rally that the president is uh, doing in Tulsa. We know that he's pushing for more rallies in that aftermath and that we have another one ahead. We know we've had states open up and there's a lag as we begin to see coronavirus cases emerge, and in some places already, a pullback from the opening or partial opening that we've seen if what we see is another enormous flare up in cases and especially in places that have no capability of handling them uh, in rural areas and smaller states that may result in another economic shock of sorts that will be an impetus for congress to do something we know as well that president trump has only one goal in mind here and that is making sure the economy which has been his calling card which he hoped would be the one issue that would create a referendum on his presidency for the fall in a positive way becomes something more positive or less negative. And so he'll be putting pressure on wherever he can to try and get the markets reacting in a positive way and get people believing that we've turned a corner here. Now, with that, we know that the House has passed the Heroes Bill, which was, as much as anything, a wish list, a sort of opening bid but with the expectation that they could put pressure on the Senate to then act. And we have not seen any action from the Senate. And indeed, what we've seen is more a studied indifference from Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, along with, of course, a hostility, a pronounced hostility towards providing bailouts, as he would call them, for states uh, that have fallen into deep debt as a consequence of the pandemic, much less Providing any other assistance that Democrats want for the Postal Service for elections and the like. Knowing Mitch McConnell quite well as I do, I believe that what's going on here is a game of chicken in essence and an end game. That he wants to hold out as long as he possibly can until we're at a point of urgency where the public is demanding. Aid. And that, of course, will happen when the $600 week unemployment benefits, the other assistance going to individuals around the country, ban on uh, evictions and the like goes away, and we see real turmoil out there. And with that, what McConnell will do is basically make a take it or leave it proposal to the House. Wouldn't surprise me if he passes something through the Senate and then adjourns the Senate and basically dares the House. To turn it away. Now, if I had to guess, my guess is that the one thing that is most significant for Trump at this point, who is concerned not just about losing the presidency for his party, but perhaps even more losing the Senate, is trying to deny significant aid for election protection from the pandemic, from cyber attacks and other things, and probably to squeeze the Postal Service enough that it would cause disruption in some of the absentee uh, balloting that will take place further down the road. Democrats would like to have not just aid going, but some real guidelines and uh, impetus for having more universal vote by mail in this election, at least allowable. And that that will be his bottom line, much more than aid going to states or aid going to individuals or protection for renters and uh, mortgage holders. But Expect a set of last-minute game negotiations here. And how that ends up, we don't know. But again, it will depend a little bit on what the state of the economy and the coronavirus is. And I would just say, finally, it's quite stunning to see an administration, as we know, in well over 20 states, we're getting indicators of a significant uptick infections, even as they push and move towards trying to get a vaccine has a studied indifference to everything else that's going on. It's almost as if that's uh, a chapter we've passed and we're moving on to other things and that will have its own implications for how long I'm just not sure. So let me stop there.
1: Well, thank you very much, Norm. We're going to come back to the politics, uh, Question in the Q and A section because there there are several competing bills and proposals floating around. We may want to revisit. So why don't we go right to Robin Prunty at S and P. And Robin, you've uh, through your series and your and your ratings work, you've done a lot of modeling uh, various scenarios that that states and municipalities face with aid with without aid. What is S and P uh, looking closest at now, and and what are your likely outcomes?
4: Thanks, Bill. Uh, the credit angle is likely to be a little more boring than the uh, political aspects of it. But yeah, I think just to step back a little bit, I think the rapid onset of this recession with the you know very swift uh, GDP decline, declines in consumer spending, and the really sharp rise in unemployment really made this play out very much more significantly for, you know, across public finance, but including state and local governments. And really, it looked. You know, from where we sat more like natural disaster events than your typical recession, which has a much longer time horizon for wreaking havoc on budgets. I think what's common what you know for recessions and natural disaster events is that you know state and local governments in particular are at the front line responding, absorbing unbudgeted costs while their revenues are deteriorating, and in this case very sharply. And of course, they have to balance their budgets and obviously balance, uh, is going to take some different turns. We think this time around, uh, we, you know, I think most municipal market participants were in a relatively strong position to start 2020, which provided some flexibility to navigate the pandemic and the recession. But there's certainly a lot of fiscal pressure out there. And given, you know, the social distancing, the closure of large segments of the economy, we didn't really see any sector in public finance that was going to be immune from this. And, you know, for the first time ever, we revised our sector outlooks to negative on April 1st, including state and local governments. And, you know, those sector outlooks are macro forward looking views on where we see credit trends ahead. You know, for the remainder of 2020, that means we probably expect to see more negative uh, rating actions than positive. It doesn't speak to individual credit ratings. I just want to highlight that. And, uh, you know, I did uh, provide a presentation that has a link to all of the activity that's gone on across the different sectors and the different publishing that we've done to kind of capture some of these risks. But it did create the sudden stop. Recession created unique liquidity pressures really across the board uh, that emerged at the time when the municipal market became very disrupted. And, you um, you know, that that was a very significant credit concern for us. Certainly the actions of the Federal Reserve and the federal government in terms of, round of round, the rounds of stimulus, including the CARES Act, provided liquidity support for the very near-term challenges. And as the market stabilized, I think, you know, we felt better about the immediate liquidity challenge. I think the thing about the CARES Act though is it's offset the spending pressure of the pandemic, but the real issue, is, particularly for state and local governments, is the revenue deterioration. So we did uh, recently publish kind of a 50 state overview of where states were, you know, from a budget standpoint and all but four start their fiscal year on July 1st. So across the board, revenue, you know, revenue downturn is there, you know, really sharp, you know, looking at April results, you know, to 70% decline, so very sharp. We realize there's going to be noise in those numbers because of the income tax filing changes, but these gaps are going to, you know, definitely reverse the trend of you know financial reserves that had been accumulating, and we think there's going to be a lot of budget adjustments, probably more uh, than even prior recessions, as the you know kind of revenue impact becomes clearer. Post July uh, tax filings um, for those that rely on personal income tax, and we're probably going to see a lot of uh, budget adjustments coming forward. So I think there's two key risks that we're looking at, and a lot is going to play out in the next couple months that will really impact credit direction. One, our economists call it the uneven health recovery, and they're seeing it as a risk to the economy. We're seeing it as a risk to economy, which very significantly impacts um, our credits but also revenue you know all 50 states have started to reopen as we know there's significant difference with the reopening plans and you know it's likely to contribute to uneven economic recovery and revenue recovery You know, the testing and contact tracing responsibility that's fallen squarely on the states at a pretty inopportune budget time and, you know, the level of investment there is going to be a factor likely in reopening and ultimate economic recovery and surges in the first wave or second wave, whatever you call it, you know, and how that plays out. I think we see the potential for a lot of variation and certainly a lot of uncertainty from a budget standpoint. And I think the second risk I would highlight that we're looking at is what our economists are calling premature austerity. I think, you know, we are of a view that absent additional federal stimulus, we expect to see, you know, very significant budget reductions at the state level to offset the revenue decline. And we kind of view states as sort of on top of the credit pyramid, if you will, and Their budget issues very quickly downstream to local governments and, you know, really other many other public finance obligors, public higher ed, you know, transportation, the broad range. So this, you know, creates two impacts in our mind, you know, obviously the immediate budget impact of that downstreaming and, you know, also what that austerity will, you know, do to the pace of the economic recovery. So we certainly, as I mentioned, think the next couple months are going to be pivotal as most recessions in, you know, for state and local governments, we think it's going to have a long tail for public finance uh, credits, you know, the equity market declines, for instance, you know, not an immediate liquidity pressure for states now, but that's going to be next year's problem with accelerating pension contributions and, you know, if if the revenue recovery is not fully underway. You know, states that state and local governments that have, you know, significant liabilities and fixed cost pressures, that's certainly going to weigh on our outlook and provide a lot less flexibility uh, for some to make the adjustments that are going to be needed to uh, restore balance. So we see a lot in the next couple months that are going to help inform our view on the credit outlook. And I think you asked us to touch quickly on the municipal liquidity fund. We have certainly highlighted over the last couple of months that a functioning municipal market is going to be very important to the recovery efforts for state and local governments. And certainly there has been stabilization there. And I think the, while the municipal liquidity facility hasn't been widely uh, embraced with only Illinois you know, participating to date, it certainly its mere presence has been stabilizing. We do expect that uh, well-gen issuers in this market – you know state and local governments generally issue for capital purposes we do see an acceleration of short and long-term debt to manage cash flow and budget shortfalls this time around and you know their ability to do that and do that on a cost-effective basis will uh, certainly be something that we're watching very closely you know we did just put out our 50 state debt report that kind of highlights that there has been restraint on, you know, sort of debt issuance over the past, you know, recovery period, which provides some margin. But we're obviously going to pay close attention to how any debt issuance for, you know, operating purposes fits into the broader budget balance strategy and, you know, overall impact on the debt profile. So I'll leave it there, uh, Bill, and hopefully Dick has been able to reconnect.
1: Thank you very much, Robin. Susan, I know you had some you had some introductory remarks, so why don't I head off to you?
2: Thank you, Bill. And thank you, Robin, for the current look and for the future look and for the concern of the future in terms of uh, potential debt issues if, in fact, cash flow borrowing occurs this year to cover budgetary gaps and how pivotal the next months are for that, both in terms of recovery and in terms of assistance. Frank Shafroth, who is the director for Center for State and Local Government Leadership at the Schar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, has done considerable work on oversight of stress municipalities and the possibility of local bankruptcy. So endgame of stress and potential bankruptcy, uh, there's no one better to turn to than Frank. Uh, Frank, tell us your positive and your negative views and what may be the outcome of the, these pivotal months. Well, I don't want to be too negative, but it is a
5: very hard time and unprecedented sort of situation. It also comes at a time that seems to me, because it's connected to the coronavirus, I think it's going to change for a very long time in shape of cities. We're going to have where it used to be the center the city in the place of the city, the town, and not merely a information age where people get together and create creations. Now, because cities are packed, they become for the spread of the coronavirus. So I really, that combined with the information world where you look at um, how, how people shop today, shop more online than ever before. That makes the idea of Mason's at downtown New York, where a shopping center decrease actually because of the coronavirus. I'll leave your house and come back with an infection and infect your children. want to shop online. But I think it's going to mean that these, Particularly states and local governments that have a heavy reliance on sales and use taxes are going to be affected. It's going to change assessed property values. If people don't want to live in New York City. If they don't want to live in downtown Denver. They to move to other areas, and that will affect property tax revenue. So I think we're entering a time of huge adverse change, particularly for center cities. Thank you, Frank.
1: Back. I want to kick this off with kind of a general question for Norm especially, but for Robin and Frank as well. There are various proposals on the table right now. There's one in Congress uh, called the SMART Act that we discussed a few weeks ago from the Problem Solvers Coalition. That's a $500 billion aid bill. Earlier this week, Tim Glender, Jason Furman, and uh, Melissa Carney Put up a bipartisan plan, which was accepted in the Washington Post, that yeah. is kind of a uh, something for everybody proposal. It touches a lot of the points that Democrats uh, the Democrats like about covering covering state and local deficits. It touches a lot of points that Republicans are asking for about job incentives, loans for small businesses, which uh, are, which mayors have been complaining about uh, on our airwaves. So in all this, I know you're kind of pessimistic of, about the, the outcome until the last minute, but is there some kind of a shape or a suggestion of a deal coming together from some of these parties?
3: So I should add that that Washington Post piece also included Glenn Hubbard, who, yes. of course, is uh, close to the people who are in the White House Council of Economic Advisers and who are advising Trump directly on economic issues, including Kevin Hassett and it, I think, is significant in this sense. It's clearly a group of sensible economists trying to put out what will be required to get the economy back on track. And that includes the elements that you mentioned as well as significant aid for state governments uh, grappling with the, the dilemma that they have with constitutional amendments in their states that require balanced budgets. We know that there was hostility to doing anything about this, as I alluded to before, from McConnell and Trump and other Republicans who saw it as a bailout of blue states who had gone high on the hog, spent lots of money, and taxed very much. But now what we're seeing is Governor DeSantis in Florida and many governors in other states are starting to scream uh, loud and long about the fiscal dilemmas that they face. So with all of that, and with what I think will be tremendous pressure to get out of whatever turmoil exists, there will be a deal. What I fear is that it will come later than it should. I believe, by the way, it'll be significantly more than $500 billion. And I also think we'll see tremendous additional pressure from Trump and others on the Fed to uh, do even more beyond whatever bailout package we get. But I think we'll see something slapped together after we already see some of the repercussions of the continuing fallout from COVID and the reactions that occur after we pass the deadlines for the packages that have already been implemented. Well,
1: we've already seen one and a half million public worker furloughs and, and layoffs and some predictions for at least that many again. Before too long, if so, if it hits three million, that's fifteen percent of the fifteen percent of the public workforce. It's a substantial chunk of uh, of American labor. Frank, you were you were I, I think you were in in the process of, uh, of speaking to this as well.
5: Well, I'm going to add that I think it will help a lot that Chairman Powell has weighed in. He said it would be a concern if Congress were to pull back from the support that it is providing to quick. Uh, noting that it would help so if appears to have hiring, he predicted the US economy would benefit states, cities and cities not forced to lay off workers. And to Republicans who claim they are deeply concerned about the deficit and debt. Uh, I think that still today, you know, so I feel whipped from behind, and I'm going to support a package.
1: Thanks, Frank. Susan, I know there's there's a, a bunch of questions on the the market implications of everything that, that's going on. Would you like to kick that off?
2: Yes, thank you, Bill. I will. There's one question that relates to this conversation, but gets more into specifics from Natalie Cohn, who is the president of National Municipal Research. And she asks, could you review the expiration dates of special assistance like unemployment insurance and the $600 extra in grace periods on evictions for non payment of rent and the mortgage forbearance PPP? It seems like August, September might be tough months. So are we in for a difficult August, no matter what, because of the game of everyone waiting for the last minute and for things to fall apart? Plus the timing of the end of support from these various programs coinciding. Robin, do you want to take that? And Norm, and perhaps um, I don't know who wants to go first on that, and then we'll turn to Frank.
4: I think that that's right. We do think August September, you know, could be uh, very tough. And you know, any future stimulus, we also do think timing matters because some of these you're seeing some mixed signals, some positive signals, but it's all backdrop of, you know, pretty significant stimulus into the, you know, economy at this time. So I think how it all, you know, plays out in terms of, you know, if another round is approved, when it actually moves, that's going to determine a lot of, you know, sort of the budget actions, the downstreaming actions that happen, you know, especially if it happens late, some of the budget cutting measures, I think, will already be in motion. So you know, I'll turn it over to any of the other panelists for additional input on that, but I would tend to agree with that time frame being potentially tough.
5: Oh, I'll only add here, yes, you have a misplay between fiscal years, right? Most cities, counties, and states run a July 1 annual fiscal year. The federal government got August recess, the end of the current federal fiscal year, September thirtieth
3: the project.: So let me add, this is Norm. I've been uh, uh, talking to a number of top epidemiologists and virologists and others just to try and get a better sense of the arc of the pandemic. And the judgment that I see emerging from the best and most objective is whether you want to call it a second wave or not. it's more semantics than anything else. We are very likely to have a significant resurgence or at least outbreak of the virus as we move to the fall. As people start to open up, it's very hard to shut down again. And if we have something similar to what we had at the beginning in April, May, say, of the virus, all of that is going to change both the economic dynamics, the public judgment, and probably coming just at the time of the uh, fiscal year ending, have some serious uh, impact on budgeting and on the actions that are going to be able to be taken by state and local governments. Well,
1: I've
6: thank got a
3: follow-up, I've so, got a follow-up
1: question here uh, from uh, Molly Shellhorn of Nuveen. And to, to cut to the chase, she, she notes that there's there's a lot of governments with elevated pensions and OPEB liabilities, very high fixed costs that Robin referred to. I know that states cannot file for bankruptcy, but uh, she, she's asking, is it better to reduce pension contributions, re issue pension obligation bonds, or find another way to restructure, such as Chapter 9? what's the outlook for, for actions like this? And this is probably in the Robin and Frank camp, I would say.
4: Frank, do you want to take that first or you want, you know, I, I think uh, the question certainly gets to the heart at what, you know, I was highlighting those with those very high fixed cost pressures, lack the flexibility typically to, you know, make the more difficult adjustments. I think from a credit perspective, bankruptcy is not, that's not a, typically that we um, think is um, helpful to uh, repayment of bondholders, but certainly, you know, any of those mix, we, we would expect any of those things to be in play, and typically it's, it's a mix of actions that are going to, and some of them may cross over to the revenue side, which is... a of course, very difficult in a you know recession period, but I would expect there will be a mix of you know potentially debt issuance to deal with some of those challenges and service reductions and you know other things to get at that structural challenge that will lay ahead if revenue either revenue decline continues or you know you have a you know very slow growth revenue recovery. So Frank, I don't know whether you would have any additional.
5: Well, this additional, I mean, it's clear that Chapter 9, which is, of course, only available in 24 of the 50 states, can be used, particularly to deal with pensions. We've certainly seen that in Detroit, we saw it in Central Falls, Rhode Island, and and there you bring in the, the federal bankruptcy court, and so I think it can ease some of that pressure but as I said, the fact that it's limited means it's to the majority of states where states can't for bankruptcy. It's only municipalities and all those.
1: Thank you for that comment, Frank. So, so Dick, we've been talking about of a likely deal at kind of a gunpoint deal in Congress that will be late and uh, not till more damage is inflicted. And we've been talking about some of the fiscal consequences for states and municipalities, especially budget cuts, problems with problems with high fixed costs like pensions. You've been through the ringer with, with New York. You've been very close to the New York, uh, the New York situation now. What are your thoughts? And we've got a special question for you uh, that that we'll get to afterwards.
6: Well, I agree with everything that my
1: three friends have said.
6: However, I have greater concern arising from three facts. One is I think there's going to be a measurable demographic change after we get through this tragic COVID crisis. I have a lot of anecdotal evidence that a significant number of people are leaving New York City and that a significant number of business people are aware of the fact that they can function as efficiently without having to pay expensive downtown office rents. So I think the future demographics of cities like New York are gonna have a profound effect on their revenue collections and unmeasurable at this point. Second of all, the uh, a number of jurisdictions that I'm aware of, and there may be others as well, are dealing with their cash flow problems by borrowing money. Well, we learned in 1975 in New York that using borrowed money to cover operating expenses is a dreadful mistake and leads to bankruptcy. And but for a $3 billion credit facility that the Treasury gave to us in October of 1975, New York City would have filed bankruptcy. And I believe the revenue loss is going to be far greater than what is currently projected. And I think that if the deficits are covered by loans, that the loans are going to mature at a time when hopefully we're coming out of this tragic mess we're in. And that will impose an enormous fiscal burden to pay off that debt at the time. And with all respect to you, my friend Norm, states may require balanced budgets, but they don't require budgets to be balanced in accordance with GAAP. So therefore, they are quite capable of using borrowed money to balance their budgets and meet their constitutional requirement. But the problem is the chickens come home to roost, as they did in New York in 1975. And My last comment is for those who say that a trillion dollar federal appropriation will affect the credit of the United States. All of the people who, for 10 years, thought that was the major domestic issue. And then when they took control of the government, they um, increased the deficit by a trillion dollars and um, didn't bother them when they did it. The choice is between unpleasant alternatives. And at the moment, Either we buy what the Wall Street Journal says is, which is that the liberals have made urban living unattractive. That's what the editor, one of the editors of the editorial page, wrote this morning. Or we accept the fact that we are going through a unique set of circumstances that requires massive federal aid. The bill that uh, Pelosi passed in the House goes a long way towards solving the problem of the revenue shortfall without requiring cities and states to assume an amount of debt they will regret having to pay off when the debt matures.
1: Well, thanks, Tick. I want to turn it back to Susan in a second, but I have to ask you a a special question. It's only about half off topic, and it comes from one of our very loyal listeners and uh, somebody we've engaged with in the past on our budget work—it's Steve Daniels, who's uh, the, the state of Indiana's uh, director of financial management in their budget agency. Greetings, greetings, Steve. <laughs> Steve asks, I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to mean to make light of the serious times we live in. But would you mind asking Dick if he thinks there will be baseball this season? Nelson Mandela once once called Dick uh, Mr. Baseball. Dick had a, Dick and Paul Volcker had a huge role in restructuring the baseball labor agreements. So what do you think? Are we going to see uh, play ball again or, or not? Well, I happened to speak to Rob Manfred
6: uh, the day before yesterday, who's the commissioner. And I've known Rob for many years. He's an extraordinarily able um, guy. And he's in the midst of... Uh, complicated serious negotiation he wants a truncated season Uh, that's the only thing that's practical at this point but the owners cannot afford to meet their contractual obligations to players that assume a full season assume a revenue sufficient to be able to pay the players in accordance with their contracts so he's in the middle of a very complicated negotiation with the um, players' union to see if they can agree on a truncated schedule and a truncated compensation level that's commensurate with the number of people and the number of games that will be televised. What the outcome of that is, I don't think is known yet, but I, I share Mr. Daniel's view. Getting baseball back
1: is critical for the morale of America. Well, perhaps we need a national sporting leagues aid act in the next congressional legislation I don't, but I don't think we get a public subsidy for baseball players that make millions of dollars a year i'm being flipped but uh, anything anything to get uh, to get balls back in the air susan do you want to take the next round of questions
2: yes uh, yes i do and i would like to ask a question following dick ravage's comments and i would like to address this to robin prunty uh, dick Ravage's comment suggested that there is a short-run and long-run burden to municipalities in the absence of a HEROES-type assistance to state and local governments. The short-run being a problem of covering revenue and loss of jobs, therefore, but the long-run being the increase in debt particularly on top of what appears to be potentially a long-run negative of COVID for cities. And so, Robin, do you have thoughts on the magnitude of both of these hits in the long run?
4: I think that, you know, we agree that it will make for a much more challenging landscape, both short-term and long-term. And short-term, the revenue issues and the associated sort of budget reductions you know, that will downstream, not just the local governments, but really across public finance. I think that we would probably expect to see accelerating debt issuance for operating purposes absent that. So that does tend to, you know, have long-term, you know, implications in terms of repayment, depending on the amortization, you know, structure that's selected. And I think the other thing, you know, that it was something that was a factor post great recession where, you know, there was that round of stimulus. They never came back more. I mean, it was a very slow recovery, which actually proved very difficult for States to navigate cities, you know, to an extent as well, because if, you know, slow revenue growth does not, you know, provide the flexibility to, you know, fund all service requirements. So, you know, we actually did see some period of, you know, credit deterioration associated with that very slow you know, revenue growth scenario. So yes, there's a fixed cost component, but I also think there's an economic component that will kind of over a long term also affect state and local governments in particular.
2: Thank you, Robin. This question is for Norm, and it's a follow-up on your response, Robin, and Dick's uh, setup of this uh, short and long-term potential negative hits. So Norm, the topic for today is state and local fiscal stress and the politics of federal aid. Do you see this short run, and particularly the long run, because I think you've already addressed the short run, but the long run, is this a equal opportunity hit? Is it going to hit red and blue states equally?
3: I think what we're going to see is that both red and blue states are going to take a very substantial hit. And what we're starting to see now is that a number of red states in part because of the way in which the response to the virus has become tribal, that the idea of wearing masks, of doing some of the things that now uh, should be universally seen as positive ways of restricting the expansion of the virus has become a political issue. When you get a president who says Free Michigan, from those kinds of sensible restrictions and you get large numbers of people with uh, assault weapons going to the Capitol, it tells you something. But what we've also seen is governors and in some cases, although much less local officials, responding to that by opening up, by not requiring the wearing of masks, for example, which we now know is the single most effective way of curtailing the spread of the virus, That means, I think, that what we started to see in places like Florida, Texas, and Arkansas, Georgia, Arizona, will expand some. And that means that there'll be more health and economic repercussions for red states, and they're going to have to confront that reality as well. You know, I would say one other thing on the long-run implications of this, we know that The uh, red states generally, the southern states in particular, have generally gotten a whole lot more in federal aid than their taxpayers have put in, that it's money that's come from the higher tax blue states. Keep in mind that by 2040, 70 percent of Americans will live in 15 states, and that means that 30 percent of Americans will elect 70 senators That 30% is not as representative of the diversity of the country, and it's going to come from states that are generally in worse shape, because the reason that the 15 states are taking up so much of the population is that that's where the economic vibrancy is. And what we're think over the long run, an even greater set of pressures from a minority of the population to take money from the majority of the population And that's going to lead to more stresses and legitimacy in the system. We have some longer term issues we're going to have to deal with that have uh, repercussions beyond the tenure of Donald Trump in the White House.
2: Well, thank you for that somewhat uh, sobering comment about the long run. I want to go back to the short run pressures right now that are occurring. And Robin, this is a question for you And as we go to the particular pressures on budgets. We have a question from Maria Amante, who is a journalist in DebtWire. What does it mean for cities and states to budget with the assumption that federal aid is forthcoming, even though it's not guaranteed? What if federal aid does not materialize? Are there cities and states that are budgeting with the assumption of federal aid that is not yet guaranteed? Can you help us here, Robin? Yeah,
4: I think that... uh You know, that is true. Um, You know, probably Illinois being the most significant example, they are budgeting very significant stimulus. And that certainly comes with risk because we've talked about we don't know whether it will happen, what the timing will be. And the thing for any government, you start a budget July 1, if it's, you know, potentially out of balance July 1, you know, as months go on, if if we get clarity in October that there is no stimulus, you have many less months to affect change to that budget and restore balance. So, you know, it's always a risk building revenues into your base that are not approved legislatively or otherwise. So we do think that's a tough budget balancing strategy
1: follow-up question for that, if I may. What I've been observing as far as many state budgets goes, we actually had a mayor on a couple weeks ago who called it real-time budgeting. So states are passing budgets that, that are designed to be re- revised after three months, four months, five months, and there are fiscally stressed states doing this. There are fiscally very sound states like Vermont that are essentially doing this. The New York state budget is premised on Another look in four months and then another look in four months. So really it's how do you deal with and, and New York, by the way, and New Jersey has, has moved the fiscal year to October first from July first. So how do you how do you deal with, with many states doing what only a few have done in the past, like like Illinois and Pennsylvania and occasionally New York and California? It seems like this is gonna be very widespread.
4: Yeah, I think I said in my remarks that, you know, well many states have budget for twenty twenty one, we expect this to be a year probably where there's more adjustments than any. And I think, you know, that actually is something that's factored into, you know, our credit reviews specifically, that frequency and timeliness of adjusting budgets to changing economic conditions. States that, you know, or cities that have a history of doing regular sort of revenue reviews and have plans to eliminate gaps that emerge. That do that in real time generally are much better positioned to manage budget volatility. So, I do think, especially with what's happening on the income tax side, the personal income tax side, where, you know, there's a lot of unknowns because of the change in the, you know, filing date, it is, you know, an unprecedented level of uncertainty to start a fiscal year. But I think that, you know, proactive budget management, that active budget management is going to be key, at least from a credit standpoint. And, you know, being able to have those contingency plans in place if, you know, you didn't cut any expenditures because you expected, you know, a very large stimulus. If if there's not a contingency plan to address that not happening at the level you budgeted, that's, you know, going to contribute to a lot more fiscal stress.
1: Fair enough. And Robin, we had a question from one of the reporters in our audience, how they can see the uh, the 50-state debt report. I, I think that's the moderating debt burdens uh, re- report that S&P uh, turned out uh, just, a, just a
4: few days ago. That was released this week. Uh, the link to it is on the PowerPoint presentation I sent you, Bill, that I think is available to anyone on the webcast. It's also available at SPRatings.com, or they can contact me via email and I'll make sure our communications folks, we can get that to you right away.
1: That's wonderful. And we will be posting that PowerPoint immediately after this with the archived version on both sites. So that's that. Susan, to uh, you want a last word here before we get to the top of the hour?
2: Uh, well, let me just ask a very a broad question in a different direction. And that is on the assistance that's being offered through the MLF. And Robin, you addressed this a bit. Perhaps you and others want to come back to this. Why isn't it being used more? And is it at this point actually at the appropriate level? The penalty rate that's been imposed is, but despite of that, it still stabilized the market. Is that sufficient? Robin, Norm, Frank, would you like to? Uh, have a word on the mon- on the Fed side of this equation of the of assistance coming from the federal government as well as from the Federal Reserve.
4: So I'm happy to jump in. You know, I don't think that, you know, it would be within our purview to say what it should look like. I think that it's clear from the guidelines that are, you know, in place that it was set up to be a residual market sort of facility, that the pricing was set to, you know, really encourage, folks to access either the municipal market or, you know, bank facilities, et cetera, uh, to the extent that that pricing was more competitive. And I think that is sort of driving the utilization to now. Maybe the others would, you know, have a view on, you know, the other aspect of the question that you had. So I turn it over to others.
2: Norm, do you want to weigh in this, Frank? Is the Fed Federal Reserve Response sufficient at this point? Is it about the right response? I'd like to respond to that, Susan. Please go ahead, Dick. Glad to have you still on.
6: As I understand it, Illinois is the only state that has availed itself of this facility that the Fed very creatively created. It's also a three-year loan. And why would you want to take, as I said earlier, capitalize all your deficits? for three years and just as you're coming out of this tragic mess we're going through, I have a mammoth debt to pay off. So people are not availing themselves of that facility now, because borrowing is not a solution to this problem. It is never a solution to cover operating
1: expenses with borrowed money.
2: Perhaps that's the last word. May I turn it back to you, Bill?
1: Indeed. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Dick. Thank you. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, attendees, of course, for listening to Special Briefing. This week's, this week's edition will be up shortly on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. I encourage you to go there. Frank Shefforth Frank sent us some material. Robin has, uh, Robin has an interesting PowerPoint presentation and a link to the debt report.
0: You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.